Hi, hey, welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Kay Albert Little, an evangelical, non-denominational convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. See, as I was digging into the deep roots of my Christian faith, I inevitably encountered the Catholic Church. And I began to realize as I began to dig into the Catholic faith that what I thought I knew about Catholicism ended up being entirely wrong. See, it was based on rumors, misunderstandings, and misinformation. Well, this podcast serves to fill in those gaps. The gaps between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. We have real Catholic conversations with influential Catholic thinkers from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this episode, this interview with Catholic Answers apologist Carlo Broussard, gets right to the heart of the mission and purpose here at the podcast. In this, part one of our two-part interview, Carlo responds to some of the toughest biblical objections to Catholic teaching. He is the author of a fantastic new book that does just that, and he joined me to talk about it. How can Catholics teach something, believe something that's clearly contradicted in the Bible? Carlo responds. And hey, this is part one of a two-part interview. Part two is available next week, but if you want to get immediate, instant access, please head over to patreon.com slash cordialcatholic to support this show. All supporters of the show will receive early, instant access to the second part of this interview, as well as access to a special behind-the-scenes podcast that I do. And supporters of $5 a month or more are also entered into monthly draws for fantastic Catholic books hand-picked by me. Even $1 a month helps to keep this show going, keep this thing rolling, and thank you sincerely to those already supporting the show. Speaking of which, I do have a new patron to thank for this episode. Thank you, Fernanda, for your support. You are the best. I thank you so much. And guys, I pray for you every day. Please pray for me. And if you want to support this show, head over to patreon.com slash cordial catholic. Without any further ado, here's my fantastic interview, part one with Carlo Broussard. Please listen and enjoy. Hello, bonjour, welcome, bienvenue. This is the Cordial Catholic Podcast. I'm Kay Albert Little, and if this is your first time joining us on the show, listening to this podcast, you're in for an absolute treat. My guest today is Carlo Broussard. Carlo is a staff apologist at Catholic Answers. He is an internationally renowned speaker on topics of apologetics, biblical studies, theology, and philosophy. He is a regular guest on Catholic Answers Live and the author of Prepare the Way, Overcoming Obstacles to God, the Gospel, and the Church. And for our purposes here, his fantastic new book, Meeting the Protestant Challenge. How to Answer 50 Biblical Objections to Catholic Beliefs. Carlo, welcome. I'm so happy you're here and great to talk to you. Hello. Hey, it's great to talk to you as well, Kay Albert. How should I refer to you as Kay or Kay Albert? <laughs> you can refer to me however way you want to. You can also call me <laughs> Keith. That's what the K stands for. So. All righty, Keith. I and, appreciate that, man. And I'll call you Carlo. There you go. <laughs> Now now we have our universe of discourse. <laughs> Which is important, right, for preparing the Indeed. way for a good conversation. <laughs> That's right. All right, so this is a fantastic book. I got to say, I uh, got my copy in the mail, and I just devoured it in probably uh, a couple of evening sittings because it's, yeah. it's, it's so easy to do. It's broken into these 50 different challenges, and it's so, it's so succinct, it's so straightforward. And uh, even if you think you know everything, which of course I, I thought I did... <laughs> 
<laughs> I learned so much new stuff from this fantastic book. So, uh, congratulations. It's a wonderful book. Thank you. Thank and you. I appreciate that. I'd love you to take us through um, what the, the this Protestant challenge is, because there are different kinds of Protestant challenges to Catholic beliefs. Uh, I think the yeah. most common one you, you hear is, well, well, Catholics believe this, where is that in the Bible? And, and right. that's a challenge we've We've, we have, as Catholics, and I often try to meet on, on this program, but your challenge is an even uh, a tougher, I would say, even more serious challenge you're meeting in this yeah. book. So, can you kind of outline what that challenge is? Yeah, so this the challenge uh, that I address and meet in this book takes the following form. So there's 50 challenges, plural, but they all sort of take the following form. How can the church teach X when the Bible says Y? This is a unique challenge. It's distinct from the older challenge of where's that in the Bible, as you mentioned, Keith, which sort of was at the center of the modern apologetics movement started by our founder here at Catholic Answers, Carl Keating. And, of course, there have been a plethora of resources and apologists who have met that challenge, providing a biblical basis uh, for a variety of Catholic beliefs. But what's interesting about that challenge, Keith, as you know, is that a Catholic is not necessarily required to meet that challenge because that challenge operates on sola scriptura, the Protestant doctrine that the scriptures alone are infallible or are infallible rule of faith. And if we're going to believe anything as a Christian, it needs to come explicitly from scripture and scripture alone. And if it doesn't, then we ought not to believe it and embrace it as Christians. But we don't have to, whenever that challenge is made to us, we, we don't have to meet it because we don't buy into sola scriptura. That's not a premise that we accept. So a Catholic can legitimately bypass that challenge and say, well, I don't don't have to show you where it's at in the Bible because I can believe it based upon sacred tradition or the authoritative teaching of the church, right? Now, that's not going to be persuasive for a Protestant in evangelistic endeavors. However, it's, it is coherent on the Catholic worldview. The challenge that I'm meeting in my book is a charge of incoherence. It's saying, you as a Catholic, you believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God, and that's something you're operating on. But yet you're teaching something that seems to contradict that which you believe to be the inspired Word of God. Now, such a charge of incoherence and a charge of contradiction is a challenge that we as Catholics must meet. Because as you know, Keith, if we're going to believe anything as a Catholic, it at least can't contradict God's word, right? Because we affirm what Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, you know, when he hammers those Pharisees for having certain traditions of men that what Jesus says nullifies the word of God. That is something that we as Catholics cannot do, nor do we want to do, right? So this is a challenge that we must meet. And what I do in my book is I go through 50 of the most common and popular challenges that our Protestant brothers and sisters pose to our Catholic beliefs, taking this form, and I show you how to meet those challenges, showing that the challenges pose no threat to the particular Catholic belief under consideration, and then also, too, to go on the offensive and at times provide some positive biblical evidence for the belief and thus answer that older challenge, where is that in the Bible type of thing. Yeah, I love I love that it's such an interesting <laughs> challenge because it's not just you know where is this in the Bible and and it, like you say the Catholic is not necessarily obliged to to use the Bible alone but as you say Catholics can believe things that contradict the Bible so if something seems to contradict Catholic belief well well we have to meet that challenge. Yeah, we need to show how that particular Bible passage that our Protestant friend is pointing to indeed coheres and jibes with the particular Catholic belief. Because if our belief does contradict that Bible passage, then we ought not to be accepting that belief, right? That tradition of man. It would be a tradition of man and not a part of the sacred tradition. And if it's nullifying God's word, we ought not to believe it. And of course, our Protestant friend is not going to embrace that 
that Catholic Catholic belief if he or she perceives that particular belief as contradicting God's word. So it's not only a matter of showing the coherence of our particular belief and that particular Bible passage for the sake of preserving the integrity of the Catholic faith, but also for the sake of our Protestant friend and evangelizing him or her and leading him or her to come and to embrace the, that particular belief and Catholicism, because if he or she perceives this belief as contradicting Scripture, that's a major obstacle, right? So in this work of evangelization, we're helping to remove those obstacles so that our Protestant friends can come to see the truth of Catholicism. So it's a both-and approach. It's a matter of defending the integrity of our Catholic faith, but also, too, to help our Protestant friends embrace the truth of Catholicism. <laughs> that's so That's so well said. Brilliant. And I hope this gives the listener a bit of a, a framework for these challenges. And I want to jump right yeah. into them because I, I can't wait anymore. <laughs> and <laughs> well, let's your, do it, Keith. Oh, your first, the first challenge I want to talk about comes from uh, Galatians. And it's the idea that Paul rebuked Peter. So how can Peter, as Catholics would say, ha- have any kind of importance as, as possibly being the first leader of the Catholic Church if, if Paul rebuked him? Yeah, so um, Keith, what you're referring to there for your listeners out there, you're referring to a passage in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, where Paul tells us that he opposed Cephas to his face because he stood condemned, right? And what is Paul talking about there? Well, if you read the, the, the event or the story, Paul, excuse me, Peter withdrew from table fellowship with Gentile converts uh, because some Jewish converts, the Judaizers coming from Antioch, were coming. And so in order to avoid, you know, scandalizing those Jewish people, he withdrew from table fellowship with those Gentile converts. And Paul hammers him for that and rebukes him because Peter actually scandalized those present and led others with him, other Jews with him, to withdraw from table fellowship with those Gentiles. And Paul rightfully calls him on it, right? And so it would seem, number one, it would seem that, you know, how can we say Peter is infallible, right, which the Catechism of the Catholic Church teaches in paragraph 891 that the Roman pontiff has the gift of infallibility, which of course has its roots in the fact that Peter had the gift of infallibility. So how can we say Peter was infallible when here he is leading people astray, right? And Paul has to rebuke him for it. And secondly, it would seem as if Paul has more authority than Peter because he's the one rebuking Peter. So how do we meet this challenge? Well, what I do, Keith, in my book is first of all, we have to point out that the rebuke was was for inappropriate behavior and not for teaching erroneous doctrine. For our Protestant friends who look to this passage as evidence that Peter is not infallible is simply a manifestation of his lack of understanding the nature of infallibility. Because infallibility, as the Catechism points out in paragraph 891, has to do with a definitive act of Uh, proclaiming a definitive act, by a definitive act, a doctrine pertaining to faith or morals. It's, It's a charism that protects Peter and his successors from teaching a doctrine in matters of faith and moral that would be Uh, with error. So, infallibility protects that teaching from error. Well, what's going on here in Galatians 2, this is a behavioral issue. This is a moral issue that Peter is failing to live up to, right? The standard of teaching. He's not teaching in any way whatsoever. And Paul even highlights the fact that the mistake was behavioral in nature. In verse 13, he says that they acted insincerely, Right Then in verse 14, he says they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. And the Greek there has the connotation of not living a life of moral correctness. So notice how our Protestant friend in making this challenge is extending the boundaries of infallibility to include things that we as Catholics reject as being under the umbrella of infallibility. Infallibility does not mean Peter will be impeccable 
or free or protected from sinful behavior, we simply say that the gift of infallibility protects Peter and his successors as the bishop in the as bishops of Rome from error in teaching doctrine that com- that pertains to matters of faith and morals. So do you see, Keith, how this challenge is simply simply manifests a lack of understanding as to the nature of infallibility? Is that pretty clear? Yeah, and I think that's a great that's a great way of unpacking it as well. And this is one of those challenges, of course, that it, that often extends um, qu- quite wide, I should say. I mean, I know lots of non-Catholic Christians and lots of non non-believers in general who would see or understand papal infallibility as impeccability, as meaning that right. like, the Pope can never do do anything wrong or, or inappropriate. This is a, a, right. a, a fairly widespread thing. And then, of course, in, in your challenge is, is meeting actual examples where it appears to show Peter acting inappropriately. But you, I think you've done a fantastic job in, in, in explaining what Catholics actually believe right. about that infallibility. Yeah. And once you clarify that misconception, it becomes obvious that this text clearly does not pose a challenge to the Catholic belief of the gift of infallibility reserved to Peter and his successors, as well as, you know, uh, the apostles and their successors, the bishops in union with Peter and his successors. But what's interesting, too, Keith, I found I found this fascinating, is that this event, rather than taking away or undermining or disproving Peter's special authority, I would argue, as others do, that it actually implies or points to Peter's special authority, right? I mean, think about it. If Peter didn't have special authority, well, then there would really be no need for Paul to record the rebuke, right? I mean, it wouldn't be a big thing. It wouldn't be even worth the ink and the space on the scroll. And so that Paul records the rebuke actually implies that Peter had special authority. Like, this is a big thing (laughs) that Paul had to rebuke Peter, and so therefore it's worthy of recording. Even Protestant scholars, Albright and Mann, and their commentary on Matthew and the Anchor Bible Commentary confirm this. They write the following. They say, had Peter been a lesser figure, his behavior would have been of far less consequence, right? And then we can even look to the fact that Paul highlights, how Paul highlights that Peter's behavior led many to follow him in withdrawing from table fellowship uh, with those Gentile converts, implying that they looked to Peter as a role model, as an example, as an authoritative figure whom they would follow. And so Paul rightfully rebukes him for that, but of course, once again, implying Peter's special authority. That's fantastic. Very well said. I think that that challenges, I mean, I got to say, <laughs> I think that challenges met very well, and at least will certainly give any non-Catholic Christian listeners to, to this program something to think uh, deeply about, and, and a hopefully a better understanding of what papal infallibility entails in the Catholic Church. Yeah. Yeah, the counter challenge uh, that I give each chapter at the after we meet the challenge at the end of each chapter, I give a counter challenge, and I think this counter challenge here uh, embodies uh, very well the idea of how our Protestant friend is misconceiving infallibility here. The counter challenge is: Can a rebuke of Peter's behavior refute papal infallibility if infallibility has nothing to do with papal behavior? Right, and so so that's a counter challenge that we can offer to our Protestant friend. Very well said. All right, the the next challenge I want to look at comes from uh, Matthew eighteen twenty in that passage in there, and this is one of my uh, I got to say this is a, a near and dear passage to me because when I first encountered this and had to wrestle with these verses talking about where two or three are gathered, uh, this ultimately led me down the, a path towards the Catholic Church. So I am yeah. especially appreciative of you meeting this challenge. Can we unpack that challenge? Yeah, indeed, yeah. So, here's the challenge. The challenge is, you know, how can the Catholic Church teach that the Church established by Jesus has a visible dimension to it with a hierarchical constitution when Jesus says in Matthew 18, 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. So, some Protestants see this passage as militating against the Catholic idea that 
that the church is a visible organization, a society structured with hierarchical organs, right, as the Catechism puts it in paragraph 771. And our Protestant friends come away from this passage as saying, you see, that, you know, this idea of the church being a visible organization is contradicted by this passage because Jesus says, we're two or three gathered in his name, that's the church. So the church is merely, and I emphasize merely there, an invisible community of believers who are united by grace. So, how do we meet this challenge? Well, what I do in my book, Keith, is the first step that we need to take is to point out that this teaching of Jesus comes by way of a conclusion to his preceding instructions about how to deal with a sinner among the brethren there in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 18. And what we find in that context, Jesus gives instructions to the apostles uh, how if the sinner— if, you, if somebody sins against you, you try to personally win him over, right? And if he doesn't listen to you, then you take two or three witnesses with you. If he refuses to listen to the two or three witnesses, Jesus says in verse 17, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So note there, Keith, the gravity of con- of the consequences for not adhering to the judgment of the church. Treat him as a Gentile or a tax collector. Both of those categories of people are outcasts in the first century, right? If you're a Gentile, you're a non-Jew. You're not a beneficiary of the blessings of God's family. If you're a Jewish tax collector, you're a traitor, man. (laughs) And so you're not considered a part of the family. And Jesus is saying, if this particular sinner refuses to listen to the judgment of the church, He's not a beneficiary of the new covenantal blessings of God's family. In other words, he's a traitor. That's a pretty serious consequence, right? Now, notice the implication here. The implication is that the church of Jesus has visible membership. Think about this. How can Jesus' church not have visible boundaries of membership if Jesus is saying that disobedient members can be cast out? You can't be cast out of something that doesn't have demarcated boundaries of membership. So that the individual who disobeys the judgment of the church is cast out indicates the visible nature of the church. And then secondly, notice too, Keith, that in verse 18, Jesus gives the apostles the authority to bind and loose. That's language in the first, that's rabbinical language in the first century that indicates or conveys the idea of judicial authority. The rabbis had the authority to bind and loose in that they had the authority to exclude or restore a person from or to membership in the faith community. And so Jesus is giving that same sort of judicial authority to the apostles. Well, how could the church be merely invisible when Jesus clearly invested with judicial authority? And once again, that they have the authority to excommunicate someone, does that not imply visible boundaries of membership in Jesus' church, the universal church, as if a visible demarcating boundaries of whether you belong to Jesus' church or not? So notice this indicates, once again, the visible nature of the church. And another detail that's fascinating here, I point this out in my book, and I'm not going to read the whole text, but what Jesus is doing here, Keith, parallels amazingly with Deuteronomy 17, 6 through 12, where Moses gives instructions for Israel's governing activity. And when you read Matthew 18, 15 through 17, Along parallel, along the side of Deuteronomy 17, 6 through 12, you see several things, several elements that parallel each other. Number one, there's a governing body that has authority to make judgments on certain matters. Secondly, there's a need to employ the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's the clue that tells us Jesus is making a direct parallel to Deuteronomy 17. There's obedience to the authoritative judgment that's necessary. And finally, there are severe consequences for not obeying the proper authoritative judgment. So what's the implication? The implication is this, Keith. Just as much uh, these, what these parallels strongly suggest is that the church, right, 
the New Testament church is just as much a visible society as the old Israel was. Just as the old Israel was not merely an invisible body of persons faithful to Yahweh, well, neither is the new Israel merely an invisible body of persons faithful to Christ, right? So that shows us that the church is not merely an invisible body of believers. Now, there's one last hanging question here, right? And that is, well, okay, if the two or three gathered in my name doesn't mean the church is merely invisible, well, when what does it mean? What is Jesus referring to? And what I argue in my book, Keith, is that if you read verse 20, where he talks about two or three gathered in my name, in within the context that precedes that verse, it becomes clear that the two or three gathered in the name of Jesus is referring to the two of you that agree on earth about anything they ask and the Father granting it to them in verse 19, right? So notice what he says in verse 19. This is right before he speaks of the two or three gathered in his name. Verse 19, he says, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Well, that sounds just like what he said in verse 18, whatever you bind and loose on earth is bound and loosed in heaven. So I would argue that when read in context, the two or three gathered in Jesus' name refers to the two agreeing on earth and the Father granting what they agree on, which coincides with verse 18 of binding and loosing. So the two or three gathered in the name of Jesus, I would argue primarily in a, in a literal historical context, refers to the apostles, the two or three apostles convening together and agreeing on a judgment and the Father ratifying it in heaven. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. Now, granted, can we say on a secondary level of interpretation where two or three gather in the name of Jesus, Jesus is there spiritually with them? Yes. But I would argue within this literal historical context, we must read verse 20 in light of what he says in verses 18 through 19. And that all has to do with the apostles governing the church and making judgments for the church, which were ratified by the Father in heaven. Oh, that's great. You know, when I, I'm a Catholic convert, and when I, when I countered this passage in Matthew as a non-denominational evangelical Christian, it, it, it kind of stopped me in my tracks because I thought, well, how can this, uh, like you said, how can this invisible church possibly, uh, you know, in, in quotes, excommunicate somebody. How can somebody be, right. be kicked out of an invisible church if there's no boundaries? That's right. <laughs> and and then I encountered I <laughs> I had a uh, I had Dr. Lawrence Feingold on the program probably about twenty episodes back or, or so in the archives, and I asked him uh, about the old the, the Catholic Church in the Old Testament. Like our topic was was typology of of the Catholic yeah. Church, and I said to him, "Is is there?" You know, kind of ignorantly, in hindsight, I said, is there really any examples of the Catholic Church in the Old Testament? And I never forget his answer was, I think there's just so much evidence that we kind of miss it sometimes. It's just so obvious. Amen. And I think Deuteronomy 17 is a clear example of that because – and notice – that parallel that I drew with Deuteronomy 17, that's not just – our hypothetical suggestion of what Jesus might be doing. But we have evidence in Matthew 18, 15 through 17, that Jesus specifically himself is intending to parallel the instructions he's given in Matthew 18 with the instructions that Moses gives in Deuteronomy 17, because Jesus said, if a, if a brother sins against you, take two or three witnesses with you, right? And that's a direct allusion to Deuteronomy 17. So apparently Jesus intends for us to understand the setup of his church and how the church is to govern and function in light of the way the old Israel functioned as well with that governing body of officials. So with a rank of authority necessarily comes a visible dimension of the church, right, and boundaries of membership. And so the church is not merely 
an invisible community of believers, although it is that, because it's grace that unites us as members of the mystical body of Christ, but it also has this visible dimension that Christ willed for his church to have, so that we can have identifying markers for us 2,000 years removed to say, that's the church of Jesus, I want to belong to it. <laughs> that's just fantastic. I can, I could, I could dig into this topic all day long. I, I really could. But Amen. I want to, I want to tackle our, our next challenge if we can, and that comes from Mark seven eight. And this is a particularly, uh, it seems like a, a scathing uh, challenge that that Catholics need to meet, and it's the idea that tradition uh, nullifies the word of God. This is a challenge that. Uh, a non-Catholic Christian might point to and say, "Well, how can you have these traditions? How can you have this, these, this religious, uh, these religious rituals and rites, this religion when Jesus clearly speaks against that? How do we meet that challenge?" Yeah, and this challenge is coming from Mark chapter 7, kind of the broader context is verses 8 through 13. You know, Jesus is saying, you keep your tradition of men and reject the commandment of God. He also says in verse 13, your tradition of men makes void the word of God. So that would seem on the surface, as you point out, Keith, to directly contradict what the catechism states in paragraph 82, that we must accept and honor both scripture and tradition. So there's a couple of ways in which our Protestant friends may use this passage to argue against that Catholic belief. Number one, they might say, well, the Bible's condemning all traditions. And so therefore, in as much as you as a Catholic hold to tradition, you're nullifying God's word. Or a Protestant might say, what this passage teaches us is that Scripture, right, uh, is our sole infallible rule of faith. That is to say, we must measure everything that we hold to based upon Scripture and Scripture alone. So those are a little bit of a distinct challenge. So let's see if we can meet both of them. What I do in my book is, first of all, Keith, we have to point out that— just because Jesus measures a tradition of men by sacred scripture, it doesn't follow that there's no tradition from God that Christians are bound to accept, because that's what Jesus is condemning here. He's condemning a tradition of men that is corrupt. Well, if Jesus is condemning a tradition of men that violates God's word, number that would imply at least the possibility perhaps there may be a sacred tradition that is of divine origin and thus would be binding for Christians, right? And of course, the tradition of man that Jesus is condemning here is the Korban tradition, as he articulates in subsequent verses there in Mark chapter 7. And the Korban tradition had to do with the first century Jewish religious leaders making a precept for the Jewish people, the, the money that they had to care for their elderly parents in accord with the fourth commandment honor your father and your mother, they were saying, hey, if you offer that money to the temple as korban, which is Hebrew for offering, then you are free of your obligation to care for your your parents. And Jesus hammers that. And Jesus makes it clear that it's the fourth commandment that this tradition is contradicting, okay? So that's the nature of the tradition that's nullifying God's word. But notice, Keith, that Jesus's condemnation of a tradition of men, as I said, once again, leaves open the possibility that there would be a sacred tradition, tradition that is binding on Christians. So that leaves us with the question, where, well, is there such a sacred apostolic tradition that the first century Christians were required to follow? And the answer is yes. And so this is where we could sort of go on the offensive and provide some positive biblical evidence for the Catholic belief that the early church's paradigm for determining the truth of God's revelation did not only consist of sacred scripture, but consisted of both sacred scripture and sacred tradition. A classic text is 2 Thessalonians 2.15 Paul instructs the Thessalonians to stand firm and hold to the traditions, the Greek word there, paradoses, which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth, the apostolic preaching, or by letter, the written New Testament epistles and gospels, etc. So there we see Paul instructing the Thessalonians to hold fast 
to both forms of tradition, the apostolic preaching, the unwritten form, and the written form, sacred scripture. I think a more even profound text, Keith, is found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. There, Paul commands the Thessalonians, notice, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not just offering a pastoral opinion. He is commanding them, invoking the name of Jesus, and he says this, Keep away from any brother who's living in idleness and not in accord with the tradition, Greek paradosis, that you receive from us. Notice the implication, Keith. The implication is that the Thessalonians must live in accord with the tradition. For any brother who's not doing so, keep away from him. The implication is that there is a sacred tradition that the early Christians were bound to adhere to, right? <laughs> and if they don't, they're like an outcast. They're not to be considered as part of the family, right? They're to be done away with and like not not to be avoided and not um, not to have fellowship with, right? So there's that sense of being cast out again, just as Jesus talked about in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. So notice that we have in Scripture a sacred tradition that the early Christians were bound to follow. And notice something, Keith, this paradigm of of early Christians being bound by sacred scripture and sacred tradition never shifts. There is no piece of evidence in the New Testament that says such a paradigm shifts and changes when all the apostles die off. No, if this is the paradigm for the first century church of Jesus Christ, this is the paradigm for Jesus' church throughout all generations, all centuries. Namely, we appeal to both sacred scripture and sacred tradition in order to come to knowledge of the truth of God's revelation. And finally, one last thought, and that is this. Just because – notice this. All, all this passage proves is that we must measure a tradition – with sacred scripture. And we as Catholics affirm that, brother, right? We say, amen. And this is exactly why I wrote the book, because anything that we believe at least can't contradict sacred scripture. So that's all this passage. The bottom line is that this passage, all this passage conveys and teaches us is that whatever we're going to hold to, it can't nullify God's word. <laughs> and we believe that, right? And so in no way does Mark chapter 7 verses 8 through 13 pose a threat or a challenge to the Catholic belief that we have to hold to both sacred scripture and sacred tradition. We have evidence that there is a sacred tradition Christians are bound to, and all this passage proves is that whatever we hold to can't contradict sacred scripture, and we believe that. So in no way does this passage serve as a challenge to the Catholic belief. <laughs> that's so that's, – that's fantastic. <laughs> that was – you must be tired. That, that's such fantastic work you've done, just unpacking that from every angle, truly – and I mean, I think I think one thing that's so important that you've underscored uh, at the beginning there, and 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 you've, you've come back to it as well, is the idea that, and this gets mixed up, I think, so often. And and I have great friends and who would be hearing this repeated from the pulpit of the churches they go to is that all religion is it's a tradition of man, and all religion is bad. But but that's not what what Christ is speaking about in in this passage and and your challenge i think meets that to explain that no it's these bad corrupt traditions traditions are okay we're encouraged to to hold to traditions but they have to be measured against the bible and we affirm that as catholics that's right and and not just any tradition right so you can have a tradition of man right a tradition of man that's not a part of sacred tradition, and that tradition of man be okay as long as it doesn't contradict God's word and you could follow it, etc. But we're actually, as Catholics, Keith, taking it a step further. And we're not just saying that, yeah, we have some traditions of men, which we do, that cohere with God's word, they don't contradict it, so we can follow it. But no, we're saying there's actually a tradition that's not only that's not a tradition of man, but it's actually a tradition of divine origin, a sacred tradition that along with sacred scripture constitutes our infallible rule of faith. So you see, we're actually taking it a step further, but yet 
following the, the guideline or the teaching of Jesus here is even that which we take as a part of sacred tradition, it's not going to contradict sacred scripture because both sacred tradition and sacred scripture are of divine origin. And of course, God's not going to contradict himself. <laughs> well said. Okay, there's one more challenge I want to tackle in this first part of our interview. And I think truly this next challenge, the best apologetic for the power of confession is to become a Catholic and, and experience that sacrament because it's, it's unbelievable yeah. power in the sacrament of reconciliation. But it does seem to contradict the Bible. Jesus tells us to, th- this idea that, that a priest can forgive sins seems to contradict things that Jesus tells us and the, and the Gospels tell us. So, how do we meet this challenge uh, that the Catholic Church gives the power to, to a priest to forgive sins, and, and this contradicts the Bible. How do we meet that challenge? Yes, yeah, so the, the, the Church does profess that priests have the authority given to them by God to forgive sins in the name of Christ. That's found in paragraph 1495 of the Catechism. And you can also check out paragraph 1463 of the Catechism. But yet, you know, we find, for example, in Mark 2.7, who can forgive sins but God alone, right? God alone forgives sins. And Jesus, since he's God, he can say in Matthew 9.6 that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So it would seem as if the church's belief that priests have the authority to forgive sins is contradicted by these biblical passages that speak of Jesus and God having the power to forgive sins. Here's the first way we can meet this challenge. God can use humans as instruments to communicate blessings of which he alone is the source. We say yes, as the Catechism actually affirms in paragraph 1441, only God forgives sins. When we as Catholics say that the priest has the power to forgive sins, we are not saying that such power resides within himself, within his own personhood, as if he is the source of that power. No, only God has that power of himself to forgive sins. And what we profess is that the apostles and their successors have a power that is communicated to them by God, that God uses them as instruments through which he's going to communicate the blessing of the forgiveness of sins. And we can draw some parallels here, Keith, in order to help our friends understand this. Listen. For example, all throughout the Gospels, you have miracles being performed, uh, actually not the Gospels, but like, for example, in the book of Acts, you have miracles being performed by the apostles. I'm thinking of Acts chapter 3, verse 6. I think there, St. Peter performs a miracle. and But any miracle that the New Testament Christians and subsequent Christians even to this day perform, no one's going to say, Oh, the source of physical healing resides in them, or no one's going to say, I have the power to perform miracles, and it comes from me, right? No, anybody's going to say, we, we might say, he has the gift of healing, he has the gift of prophecy, he has a, one of the charismatic gifts, right, uh, perform miracles. But in no way do we mean to say that the source of power resides in that person alone, in that person. We recognize that that person is a vessel or an instrument that God uses to communicate the blessing of miracles and physical healings. Think about truth. Who is the source of truth? God. Does God have the power to infuse knowledge and truth into our minds by himself directly without anybody else helping him out? Yes. But yet, what does Jesus command in Matthew 28, 20? Go, therefore, and make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So, even though God is the source of truth and knowledge, he wills to use his apostles and others to be instruments to communicate that blessing of truth, right? And so, just as God is the source of truth, God is the source of physical healings and the power for physical healings, but yet wills to use human instruments to communicate those blessings, so too God alone has the power of himself to forgive sins. But he chooses his ordained ministers, the apostles and their successors, bishops and presbyters, to be the instruments by which he's going to communicate that blessing of the forgiveness of sins. And the difference, though, 
is that with with the with the blessing of the forgiveness of sins, God restricts his ordained clergy to having that instrumental power, right? To be those instruments, to exercise that power to administer God's forgiveness of sins. But I think the parallel with those other blessings at least helps us understand that just because God is the source of something, right, and has the power in and of himself, it doesn't necessarily follow from that that he cannot use instruments to communicate that power, to exercise that power, and to communicate those blessings. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think that's a fantastic way of putting it. Of course, you've done a fantastic job answering these these challenges. And I'm thinking of my own experience. I mean, when I first began to look into the roots of my own faith and ended up researching the Catholic Church and reading the early church fathers, I didn't even know what the sacraments were or what sacramental right. or, or sacrament even, even meant. But once I began to understand that the Catholic Church believes that God works through stuff, and once Amen. I began to realize that this is how God even worked in the Old Testament, and That's then we right. see, as you've said, in the Gospels, it just becomes more and more obvious that this, and then, like I said, you you go receive Eucharist uh, during Catholic Mass, you go to confession, you begin to experience these sacraments as a Catholic, and and understand what's in behind them, what's working through them. I mean, yeah. then it's, it's a no-brainer to see that, yeah, of course this makes sense. Of course, Carlo, hearing somebody say, you know, you are forgiven by the power that God has given me, you are forgiven. Yes. And you hear those words. I mean, oh, the power in that. <laughs> you know what I'm yeah. talking about. Amen to that, brother. Amen to that. And this is in continuity. You 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 brought it up in passing, Keith. This is in continuity with the way God related to his people in the Old Testament. I mean, consider like, for example, in Leviticus 5, 5 through 6 and Numbers 15, 27 through 28. Both of those passages articulate and give instructions about how to make a sacrifice for the atonement of sin. They're to bring their victim to whom? The the priests to offer their sacrifice and even confess their sins, right? A form of public confession. So notice that God, even in the Old Testament, willed to, to associate the forgiveness of sins for his people with his ordained ministers, with his ordained priests. So too in the new covenant, Jesus intends and wills to associate the forgiveness of sins with the New Testament priests, his apostles. Now, of course, there's going to be differences in in the way the priests interact and work and operate, but just the idea of God associating the communication of the forgiveness of sins with his priests in the Old Testament and with his apostles in the New. So what we're saying here as Catholics is that the sacrament of reconciliation is right in continuity with how God related to his people in the Old Covenant. And of course, the positive biblical evidence for this is in John 20, 20 through 23 in context, but in verse 23, he tells the apostles, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. That Jesus gives the apostles the authority to make a judgment whether to forgive or not to forgive implies that penitents verbally confess their sins to the apostles, because how else will they know whether to forgive or not to forgive unless they hear the sins committed and know whether the individual is actually sorry for their sins, right? So there from the lips of Jesus himself, we find Jesus investing the apostles with the power and the authority to administer the forgiveness of sins, but also to retain sin, which would imply confession of sins on the part of the penitent. So there we have some positive biblical evidence for Jesus instituting the sacrament of reconciliation. That sounds fantastic. Listen, Carlo, I am so grateful for your time being on this program uh, for this first part of our interview. You're going to come back next yeah, week. Yeah, it was great. And yeah, join us. Awesome. I'm, I'm so excited to, to dig into this even deeper. Uh, why don't yeah. you tell people where they can go to, uh, I mean, pick up this book, uh, learn yeah. more about what, what you're doing and, and what you're uh, up to at Catholic Answers there. Where can they go? Yeah, they can go to shop.catholic.com to get a hold of the book. Uh, they can get it on Amazon. And if they do get a copy and read through it, we would appreciate it if they would give us a review 
at Amazon. That would help us out greatly. And they can follow my work at Catholic.com. All of the stuff that I do goes up at Catholic.com. The articles I write for the online magazine, any uh, Catholic Answers Live uh, shows that I do, the podcast that I do with Cy on Catholic Answers Focus, that's all there at Catholic.com. But because uh, when, whenever my stuff goes live, it, get lo- it gets lost in the feed within minutes because we produce so much, they can go to <laughs> CarloBroussard.com. That's just my first and last name together, CarloBroussard.com. And all of the work that I do here at Catholic Answers and ho- is hosted in one location there for easy access. That sounds fantastic. I'll put those links also in the show notes. Thank you so much, Carlo. Uh, God bless you and your family and the fantastic work you are doing for the church. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, Keith. Thanks for having me, brother. God bless you. God bless. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Cordial Catholic Podcast. Head over to patreon.com slash cordialcatholic to support this show and get instant, immediate access to part two of this fantastic interview. Carlo digs deeper into several more biblical objections to the Catholic faith and does a fantastic job explaining how Catholics can expand and understand and respond to those challenges. It's an amazing, incredible, fantastic interview. You're going to love it. And truly, friends, every dollar supporting this show really helps to keep this thing going and helps me to expand the mission of evangelization which underpins this podcast. That's at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. Check out the show notes for this show and links to Carlo's website and his fantastic books at thecordialcatholic.com, where my blog also lives. I'm at Cordial Catholic on Twitter, The Cordial Catholic on Facebook, and please do email me. Let me know who you are, where you're listening from, and why, oh, why are you listening? <laughs> That's at cordialcatholic at gmail.com. I love hearing from you guys. Please subscribe to and follow this podcast if you can. Please leave ratings and reviews. Please tell a friend. And please, guys, pray for me. I'm praying for you, and I'll talk to you next time, guys. Thanks for listening, and God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.